John chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. You'll find that on page 1059 in that black hardcover Bible that you picked up in the back. Let me read this text for us, and we're going to consider what Jesus says together. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. There's been a build in chapter 6 so far in John's Gospel. There's been a build in our exploration so far in chapter 6. We've witnessed two really amazing things that Jesus has done. The first thing that he did was to feed the 5,000 men, not including women and children. He fed all of those people, that large crowd that's still following Jesus around that we meet again here in verse 22. They're following Jesus around because Jesus fed them using just five loaves and two fish. And then, last week, we explored uh, the, the, uh, the, the passage where Jesus walks on the water where the disciples get into the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus comes to them walking on the water in the midst of the uh, uh, tumultuous weather. And this morning we're going to find that the setup to uh, what Jesus teaches here, what he begins to teach here is really important. Um, Because in this section of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to preach a sermon. He's going to preach a sermon to this crowd, to the people who came across the, the sea to... And, and sort of chased him, him there. This sermon is referred to as the bread of life discourse. And so the, for the remainder of chapter 6, what Jesus is going to do is he is going to, um, he's going to reveal something to us. He's going to reveal something to the crowd and to his disciples that previously he has not stated. Um, he is going to reveal that he is the bread of life. And throughout this sermon, it sort of begins in verse 27. There's a little bit of back and forth here, but it begins in verse 27, the last verse of our text this morning, and goes to the end of the chapter. Jesus is going to refer to himself as the bread of life on several occasions. In verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 41, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And in verses 50 and 51, he says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. These aren't the only references to uh, bread in this sermon, but these are the ones uh, where Jesus explicitly connects himself to the bread of life. He explicitly says, I am the bread of, of life. So some of you have been around Buffalo City Church long enough uh, to remember in 2016, we spent seven Sundays discussing seven 
what we called I am statements of Jesus. You'll see that one right at the top there uh, on the screen. I am the bread of life in John 6, 48. Jesus makes that explicit statement. This is the first I am statement in John's gospel that Jesus makes. And there are uh, seven of these statements that Jesus makes. And what Jesus is doing when he says, I am the bread of life, or when he says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life, or when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus makes statements like that, he is referring to his own divinity. He is telling people he is God, based on the first two words in those phrases, I am. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is making a very explicit statement. He is referring to himself as God by referring to God's name that God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, with the name Yahweh. You remember that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And if you're reading through the Bible with us, and if you're caught up, you'll remember uh, it was about 10 days ago. We were at the beginning of Exodus, and Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. Uh, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people in Israel, of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Jesus is picking up this language uh, from Exodus chapter 3, and he is making an explicit declaration about the fact that he is, is God. And we see that here in our text today. Well, we will in next week when we look all the way to verse 35. But Jesus makes this explicit declaration. Um, verse 20 of the text, we get a basic understanding, uh, that was from last week, where he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is sort of the setup into this I am statement. He says, it is I, or I am, do not be afraid. No one else other than the person of Jesus Christ has the ability as a man to say with, uh, with certainty, I am, do not be afraid, or it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus says this with utmost certainty in verse 20, because it is he who is God. So he says, it is I, or it is I am, do not be afraid. So I want you to think very carefully with me about what has happened before Jesus starts talking here before this engagement with the crowd. And I mentioned these things a moment ago. But last week again, we saw Jesus walk on the water and he came to the disciples and he spoke to them and said, it is I, do not be afraid. And then Jesus immediately takes the disciples to their destination, um, right in verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was on the land to which they were going. Jesus delivered them unharmed to their destination um, and does so immediately. Before that though, Again, a few weeks ago, we learned that Jesus fed the 5,000. And so, again, we're, we're meant to, what we're meant to do is not read those, uh, those stories in a vacuum, but we're meant to begin to see that Jesus is, is sort of enacting these things out for us so that we can have a better understanding of what he's about to communicate to us uh, in this sermon that he's going to preach at the, in the second half of John chapter 6. So, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and, and the conclusion or the questions that we're supposed to begin asking is, if Jesus can powerfully, and if Jesus can 
willingly meet our needs, our earthly needs. Um, and if he can, like he does when he walks on the water, demonstrate a, a, a power or command over creation, then we should ask ourselves, what else can Jesus do? What else can Jesus do? And, and, then, and then the question is, how should we be responding? As those who are in Christ, how should we be responding? And so our time together, I'm not going to necessarily bring those questions up again, but we're going to drive to answer those based on just the setup here to, to Jesus' sermon. What else can Jesus do and how should we be responding? The setup that's explained to us in this text before Jesus even speaks comes to us in verses 22 through 25. We see that the crowds head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, They suspect something is up because they don't see Jesus again. They saw his disciples get into the boat and cross the sea, but they didn't see Jesus get into a boat. Um, But now they've come across the other side uh, to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and and, and there's Jesus. He's there. He made his way across the sea. And they asked Jesus, the, the question that we find in verse 25 is, Rabbi, when did you come here? That, now, this is a statement of surprise. Jesus, that Jesus came there, but they didn't, how did he get here? How did Jesus get here? And we'll see that Jesus, in verse 26, he doesn't ask them or answer their question directly. Rather, what he does is he tells them why they sought him out, why they came to him. And so that's the first thing. As we see that set up in verses 22 through 25, that's the first thing I want you to take note of in verse 26. Because Jesus answers to them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill, of the loaves. So the first thing this morning, the desires of the crowd were too small. I'm going to flesh that out in a moment. And our, their desires and our desires need to grow. What Jesus said here is that he, he fed hungry bellies. Jesus fed hungry, hungry bellies. And Jesus tells the people that they didn't come to him. They didn't seek him out. They didn't go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to find him. Uh, so that because he did a sign or because he did a miracle, because he fed them with five uh, loaves and two fish. But instead, this is startling. I want you to see how startling this is. They come to him because he gave them a meal. He came, they came to him because their, their motivation was a meal. And he says it. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. I think what we're meant to glean out of this is that this is a a high level of spiritual blindness on display in this crowd. This is a high degree. I don't think we expect to find this from people who have been proximate to Jesus. They literally just witnessed him multiply five loaves and two fish into a meal that satisfied thousands of people. I don't think that we're ready to meet what Jesus says here in verse 26. They didn't do it because Jesus did something miraculous. They did it because they wanted to eat. 
Jesus says that the crowd wasn't seeking him for signs. And again, that, that would kind of make, that would make sense to me. That would make sense to me if Jesus was like, you sought me for the, the, the miraculous thing I did. That would make sense. The people watch Jesus do this thing. That kind of supernatural activity warrants attention. In our world, there's a lot of people who seek spiritual signs and miracles. There are groups of people who are continually seeking Jesus for supernatural experiences. They don't talk much more than anything about, just about supernatural experiences. It's their subject of most of their conversation. And they find their hope in the next supernatural event. They're just looking for Jesus to do something big and miraculous and then they leap all over everything else in life until they get to another big supernatural event that they feel like they've experienced. Now, God does things supernaturally in our world all of the time. He does things in our world all of the time. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. Many of you may have experienced something supernatural this week. And like we talked about last week, Jesus is the king of creation. So how or why would we not also believe that Jesus could govern, who, the one who governs the laws of nature and the world, um, that everything, even the law, those laws, would be subject to him? Of course, he can do something outside of the natural order of things. But the Bible is clear. While we can benefit from God's supernatural activity on our, in our lives and around us, we should not seek those things exclusively as a substitute for God himself. We should be wary of people. You should be, friends, you should be wary of groups of people who only talk about supernatural experiences, that only talk about the things of, of God as if they were earth-shattering who call themselves Christians, but are only ever seeking something supernatural. But for this crowd even, well, that would have been a red flag, seeking the signs exclusively. Well, that would have been a red flag. Jesus said it's even less than that. They witness a miracle. Because following after Jesus in order to see another sign, again, would have probably made a lot of sense. And we see, saw earlier in John's gospel that that even happened in John chapter 2, right at the end. But Jesus says that's not even the reason they're seeking him. They're seeking him for a meal. Jesus says the crowd was seeking him for a meal. Again, this is a, start, a startling level of spiritual, spiritual blindness. They, they weren't even looking for something incredible. They were just looking to eat. And Jesus says that they were seeking him just because they ate their fill of the loaves. <laughs> this is actual insanity. Um, this is actual insanity. If you were to get tickets to the, the greatest musical act, I don't know what that was, over the last century. Like just greatest musical act over the last century. Or the greatest, most exciting sporting event over the, in the last decade. If you were to get tickets to those events and went and experienced it for yourself, the crowds, the madness, everything, if you had gone to those events and then your friend asks you on the tail end, says to you, hey, how was that event? That, was, that looked pretty incredible. I saw some stuff on the internet about it and that looks pretty 
pretty amazing. And you said, yeah, I went and I had a pretty good hot dog. Uh, and your friend's like, that's it? And you say, yeah, well, that's all I really wanted. I just wanted a hot dog. That's what it's like. That's what it's like to, to have witnessed Jesus multiply five loaves and two fish to feed thousands of people and then just be like, well, that was a good meal and then never think about anything else. The crowd just wanted lunch, just a free meal. The conclusion I think that we're meant to draw though, the conclusion that we're meant to draw is this, that we should not seek the provision over the provider. We should not seek the provision over the provider. And we can see this clearly in what Jesus says in verse 27, when he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. All the work that the, all the, work that the crowd had done to chase Jesus across the Sea of Galilee was for food that perishes. The provision is good for a time period. It's good temporarily. John read this morning out of the book of Exodus there as well. And, and when God provides the manna and the quail for the people, those things spoil at the end of, end of each day. There's a very clear decay understood and built into this provision. Even that Jesus made, the bread was going to get moldy or it would get stale. There were baskets left over of, of food. There were baskets left over of food after Jesus multiplied all of these things. But that food wouldn't last forever. It had an expiration date. God provides, but don't seek the thing that he provides over the provider himself. Now, now you may be thinking, yeah, I see that there's insanity there, right? Like that God himself offers us himself, uh, but I wouldn't seek Jesus for a meal. I think maybe that actually hits a little closer to home. For us. I wouldn't seek Jesus just for a meal. I seek Jesus more than that. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we sort of do this more often than not. We, we treat the Bible, oftentimes Christians treat the Bible as a self-help book designed to make us feel better when we're feeling bad. You have a rough day, you're feeling frustrated, you're sad, you're lonely, depressed, and so you Google Bible verses for people who are frustrated, sad, lonely, or depressed. And then we read some, some, uh, some verses off that list to take the edge off our negative emotion. That's seeking the provision over the provider. That's not desiring to know God and understand His character and understand the things that the infinite well of kindness and goodness and generosity and grace that's given to us. We just simply want the, the edge off. We're going to get hungry again. You're going to feel that negative emotion again. You need something that lasts longer. You need something that lasts longer. Or maybe this is you. Maybe you rarely, if ever, pray unless something bad is happening in your life. Again, that's how many Christians approach prayer. There's a big deadline at work or a situation with a family member making you feel anxious 
or you're feeling physically sick. And so you find yourself praying. But when life is smooth sailing, prayer is the last thing on your radar. We may only go to Scripture or pray when we feel the pain of hunger hit our spiritual sense. Jesus is warning against that. Now, what I want to say to you is that the people here weren't wrong for desiring to have their need met. You do need to eat lunch today. You do need to eat dinner. You will need to eat before this day is over. And you'll need to eat tomorrow too. It's not wrong to desire to have that need met. So the solution then, we're going to work towards the solution as we explore verse 27 a bit more, but the solution here isn't to eliminate our desire for food or drink or even just to feel good. The church has made that mistake in the past too, and that probably led to something like monasticism. But the solution here isn't to eliminate our desire for food or drink or just to have the edge taken off our negative emotions. But rather the solution is to have a bigger desire. This may seem counterintuitive to us, but we'll, we'll explore this together. The solution is to have a bigger desire. Because when our desires are small, they can be met with small temporary things. But when our desires grow, they, they can only be met by big, eternal things. They can't be just f- fed with good food or drink or, or, or positive vibes. And that's what Jesus is talking about when we get to verse 27. He tells the people that their desire for food that perishes is a desire that is too weak and is too small. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. The desire just to have our bellies filled, the desire to curb negative emotions, the desire to have a bad situation handled in our life, These aren't bad desires, they're just weak ones. And if the satisfaction of those things is enough, then that's a good indication that we are are meddling or or middling in in desires that are too small and too weak. Jesus tells the people here that they should want more. They should want more than just a meal. Not more temporary pleasures and satisfactions. Not bigger houses or new cars, not good vibes or positive thoughts, but your desires need to grow until it becomes really clear that they can't be met by anything on earth. Because when your desires get that big, what's going to fill them? When your desires get that big, what's going to fill them? It's not going to be money and material. It's not going to be harmonious living. It's not going to be personal peace. It's not going to be education and entertainment and experiences. It's not going to be bread and fish multiplied. And that's where the work begins. That's the second thing then this morning I want you to see here in specifically verse 27. When our desires grow, Jesus gives satisfaction. When our desires grow, Jesus gives satisfaction satisfaction. And the language that Jesus here uh, uses is, is really resonant, I think, with our culture in particular, because North Dakotans are hard workers. We're, we're, we value work. 
And so the way that Jesus says this, I think is helpful because look at verse 27 where he says, do not work for the food that perishes. He says, do not work for it. Or if you're reading a different translation, it might say, do not labor for food that perishes. but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. In verse, look, go back to verse 26. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. So he uses that verb, the verb of seeking, but then he changes the action to work in verse 27. Work or labor implies much more intentional, thoughtful, intensive process than just seeking. I can seek for my keys in the kitchen counter or I can seek for a a new sweatshirt online, but that's much less involved than working. And this should indicate something to us. We should realize that when our desires grow, it does in fact take something much bigger to satisfy those desires. Now, what this shouldn't be meant, uh, we shouldn't take this as Uh, You need to work for your salvation, or your salvation is contingent upon your working. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Rather, Jesus is saying, I give you eternal life. That's what he says. He says, the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He will give you the food, he will give you the eternal life. So, Jesus is saying, I give you eternal life, and so, your life now needs to reflect an intentional thoughtful, diligent, faithful pursuit of eternal things, not temporary ones. And Jesus freely gives big satisfaction to big desires because he freely gives of himself. We've already seen this in John's Gospel. This is going to continue. Jesus freely gives of himself. And it's going to culminate with him going to the cross, freely giving himself. If eternal life is ours in Christ, then our lives now need to reflect intentional, thoughtful, diligent, faithful pursuit of eternal things, not temporary ones. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not that things, not things that are on earth. What are the eternal things that we need to be intentionally, thoughtfully, diligently, and faithfully pursuing? The answer to that question the Apostle Paul gives us in Colossians 3 is simple. The things, the eternal things that we need to be intentionally, thoughtfully, diligently, and faithfully pursuing is Jesus Christ. If eternal life in ours, in Christ, is ours in Christ, then our lives now need to reflect intentional, thoughtful, diligent, faithful pursuit of Him. So let's, let's think about some implications together. In Jesus' words, especially in verse 27, we find a, a warning and we find an encouragement. So the first thing is the warning. I think it's this. 
be, be on guard against small desires and spiritual apathy. Be on guard against small desires and spiritual apathy. I, 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 need, I need to admit to you that this is one of my biggest concerns for us as a church. That small desires and spiritual apathy are slippery slopes. Spiritual apathy is just a lack of interest, a desire, concern, or enthusiasm for the things of God. We need to, we need to think clearly about Jesus' words here and take a strong personal assessment If eternal life is ours in Jesus Christ, then our lives now need to reflect an intentional, thoughtful, diligent, faithful pursuit of eternal things, not temporary ones. We apply ourselves in these sorts of ways all the time. And friends, they also need to be applied to spiritual things. There is nothing about what Jesus says here, there is nothing in Scripture that should lead us to believe that we can coast through the Christian life. You can't actually read the Bible and walk away believing that because you've been saved, therefore it doesn't matter what you do from here on out. You cannot walk away from reading Scripture with that belief still inside of you. This is the danger of what we call easy believism, where it's just like, yeah, I believe, and and I'm good. And I'll do what I want where I want to do it. And I will have small desires and pursue them and be satisfied with small temporary things like a meal. Not that those things are bad or wrong, but they're all designed to point us further to one who can satisfy every desire for all of eternity. We're hardworking, practical people. And in our community here in Jamestown, I've spoken to a lot of people recently who have told me about their upbringing in the church and who have said, yeah, we went to church on Sunday and we never talked about it again. That's spiritual apathy. That's going into a building to do some ritual thing. putting our Bible on the nightstand, never cracking it open, and somehow thinking by osmosis, God is going to impart something to us. We work hard, we're practical people, and therefore I think we need to recognize the struggle that we have. Friends, I fight this fight every day. Where is the the physical Uh, measurable fruit of my labor. But friends, if you are in Christ, you are working for things that are not measurable by something temporary. We are not measuring unseen things with seen things. And that's where my concern is that we are easily allured by the things of the world and easily sink deep into spiritual apathy. And when we are spiritually apathetic, our desires are far too easily satisfied 
with temporary things. Lewis goes on after the quote that I read earlier when he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And then he says, you may have heard this before, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition where infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by offering of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Go to the Super Bowl and your most memorable moment is a, stale, a hot dog on a stale bun. Houses and cars and food and good drink and sports and family and friendships and careers and money, you name it. These things are not bad things. They're not bad things. We're not meant to live lives of asceticism. Please hear me say that. They're not bad things. Matt Chandler, I think, I think it was Matt Chandler said it like this. They make terrible gods. And the temporary things of this world represent all that you work for in this life. Then you've chose to serve stupid, dumb, deaf, blind gods. Psalm 115, the psalmist writes, They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but they do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. They do not have a sound in their throat. Friends, you know the God who spoke everything into existence with a word. There is a sound in his throat. He raised you from spiritual death and gave you spiritual life with a word. So what, what's the solution for spiritual apathy? And I think it's what Jesus says right here. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Apply yourself to intentional, thoughtful, diligent, faithful pursuit of Jesus Christ. And you will find that Jesus exposes the fact that your desires are too small and too weak. And then keep working. And Jesus, who gives himself freely, will expand and strengthen your desires and then satisfy them with himself. So that's the warning, spiritual apathy. The warning is spiritual apathy and small desires. But the encouragement here is this. Jesus gives you good gifts designed to strengthen and expand your desires and gives all of himself to you to satisfy them. Friends, again, the word of God is given to you to enliven and to awaken big, strong desires. God tells you to come to him in prayer and ask for what you do desire. And we may go to him in prayer regularly. We ask him to bless our food. We pray physical needs to be met. We express dependence on him for these things. And these are important things to pray. But David writes in Psalm 30, 37, 4, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But when the word of God dwells in us richly, like it says in Colossians 3, when the word of God dwells in us as God's people richly, the word resonates in our mind and our desires are strengthened and expanded. And letting the word of God and the truth of who God is resonate in our mind will bring us to a place of delighting in him. You cannot delight in something you don't know. 
You can't delight in your kids. You can't delight in your spouse. You can't delight in your parents. You can't delight in a friend. You can't delight in someone you don't know. You must spend time with them, listening to them, before you can delight in them. And the same is true with God. We have to delight in Him by getting to know Him intimately. And God gives you His Spirit to give you the strength to do that. If you're like, I don't, know, I don't get the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me. Friends, you have a whole host of resources here, sitting in the pews here this morning. You have a whole host of resources given to you and an infinite God who gives His Spirit to you to help you. God gives you His Word. God also gives us the church to aid in our work for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is speaking to a group of people here when He says, do not work for the food that perishes. Working for the food that endures to eternal life is a work to delight in the Lord and one that's designed to happen together. Because the best meal that you've ever had required work. The best meal that you've ever had required work. If you ate a restaurant, it wasn't yours. That's fine. But if you made it at home, it required work. But it required probably even more work than you put in. You may have grown the food yourself, but but if you didn't, if you bought it at the store, it was planting, watering, harvesting, processing, distributing, all before it gets to the shelves in the grocery store and then into your home or into that restaurant where it gets prepped, cooked, plated, and then served, then eaten. We should know that this verse isn't designed to operate in a vacuum, but is designed for us to understand that we all together need to be working and that we don't have to work alone, but we can benefit greatly from others who are working and laboring alongside of us. We can benefit from the work of others. We can benefit from people who have gone before us and written things. For the last 2,000 years, men and women have been devoting themselves to writing about the things of God. We can benefit from others who are working for the food that endures to eternal life. And so congregational worship, what we're doing right here, right now, um, is important because it gives us an opportunity to share in the feast, the work that's done. When I prepare a sermon on Sunday, that's work that I hope would benefit you. That you would walk away feeling like I am eating of the feast, of the food that does not perish but endures to eternal life. We'll see next week as we move through the remainder of John chapter 6. The work of God is that you believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to give in continually to the work of God and to be into the people of God. We find our desires expanding and strengthening and desires of our heart become only satisfiable by Jesus. So we need to feast in the right place. We need to feast on the bread of life. And that's what we're going to consider as we think about through the rest of John's gospel. But for now, let's pray.